Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to a bonus episode of What Could Go Right. I'm Emma Varvalukas, Executive Director of the Progress Network. This episode was recorded in May of 2021. Take a listen. So I'm talking today with Norina Hertz, who is both a member of the Progress Network, which we are delighted, excited, thrilled, all sorts of thesaurus-like adverbs about, and uh, also a professor in London, a an author, and we'll talk about the new book, which is uh, on your back left shoulder, I guess on our back right shoulder, but in case that gets drowned out by the by the sea of impressive erudite books behind her. It's also right here and right there and right there and then right there. So um, so we'll talk a bit about the book uh, and then maybe a bit about you know the post-pandemic world, optimistically that there is in fact a post-pandemic world, um, although honestly, there sort of has to be a post-pandemic world or else the human race will just somehow stop in its very tracks. And I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but it's funny, you know, so you began this book and these questions long before a period where loneliness has become the coin of the realm. Um, so in, in a strange way, you, you, you anticipated an increase in a trend that then got hypercharged by a pandemic. Um, so what what led you, you know, I guess give, give me a sense of like who's Narina and, and what led you into doing this? And you know, what what were the animating questions? And did was this something you thought about like 30 years ago and then it became more acute? Or I'm curious as to the pathway. Sure. Well, it, it was really about four years ago that I started thinking about loneliness and a few things happened at roughly the same time that made me get interested in it. First was my students. I was teaching at university. I've been teaching at university on and off for the past 20 years. And about four years ago, I noticed something different going on. My students, many of them were coming into my office in office hours and confiding in me that they felt very lonely. And this was something new that I hadn't seen before. And there was something else I observed with my students when I was setting them group assignments. Many were struggling with 
in-person, face-to-face interaction, with social interaction in a way that they hadn't, that previous generations hadn't. And I noted it and I thought that's interesting. At at the same time, in my research, I was researching the rise of right-wing populism across the globe. So from Trump voters in the United States to Le Pen voters in France, Salvini voters in Italy, alternative for Deutschland voters in Germany. And as I started interviewing these voters and hearing their testimonies, one thing that came out time and time again from their stories was how lonely they felt and how they were finding community um, in these right-wing populist movements. Uh, Lonely in the sense of lacking friends and feeling... um, Um, lacking a social network for sure, but also lonely in the sense of feeling invisible, ignored, um, unseen, and feeling that right-wing populist leaders were, were seeing them. So that was interesting to me as well. And then I had bought an Alexa and, um, And I found myself becoming increasingly attached to my Alexa, which got me thinking about the fact that what I came to call a loneliness economy was emerging, a whole economy emerging to essentially deliver connection and and at best community even, uh, which signaled that there was a demand a demand for these products, which again signaled that there was a a problem. And because it was coming at me from these three really distinct and very different areas, I thought I want to dig into this whole phenomenon more because is loneliness, um, is this, is loneliness a way of making, helping to make sense of where the world is currently at? And as I came to realize how widespread loneliness was, how it was affecting in the United States, one in five Americans who were feeling lonely always or most of the time, even before the pandemic, the fact that one in five millennials said that they didn't have a single friend, the fact that 40% of office workers were saying that they felt lonely. As I was kind of digging into the data and starting to interview people as well, I came to see loneliness as in many ways the defining condition of this century and helping to explain some of these seismic political and social shifts we've seen, um, as well as as being a product of them as well. And um, yeah, so that was kind of how this all, how it all got going, this research. (laughs) Well, you know, you talk about Alexa, I remember um, our younger son got an Alexa or, or got one of the devices a few years ago. And it, it engendered a whole debate amongst, you know, my wife, my son, us of, should you, should you treat your Alexa um, with the manners that you treat a human being, right? Like this whole AI question. And so at one point in the book, you allude to black mirror, which we could get into as a kind of right. a emblematic moment of cultural alienation and loneliness, right? The whole show is sort of cast with a pall of disconnected humans trying to navigate their way through a dystopic, a technology environment, but this question of, are you supposed to interact with Alexa with the same sort of sensitivity and, and politeness and gratitude and appreciation that you would presumably 
with a friend or someone you know working with you? Should you say please? Should you say thank you? Should you um, you know questions that w- remain asked and, and unresolved, which is neither here nor there, but it's an interesting question about like yes. you know. I, what, what I say doing? please. I say please and thank you to my Alexa. Um, for sure, I think because I think this is about us practicing um, practicing these skills, and um, and I think you know in the same way that the, with the way we treat our pets um, speaks to the kind of people we are. I think in a way the way we treat our inanimate Alexas does too, um, especially when children are you know, with kids who are kind of growing up in homes with Alexas, you know, are perceiving them as essentially um, not that distinct from, or not distinct at all from people. My, I'm, I have a um, two-year-old niece and my um, sister-in-law was telling me the other day they were making greeting cards for um, family members and she said to my niece, um, who should we make a card for next? And the niece said, Alexa. That's very, <laughs> I don't know if that's incredibly sweet or incredibly strange or some weird combination thereof, but it's definitely the world that not only we're inhabiting, but it would appear is going to be increasingly, you know, ubiquitous. Um, someone yeah, asked a it, question. It's yeah, good, and it's for good or for ill and for right. ill, right? It's right. both. You know, I do think, you know, I think, an attachment to an AI um, can alleviate loneliness at the personal level for sure and can help you feel more connected. Um, not all friends are the same quality in one's real life, but um, but I but it worries me the societal implications, um, especially if we were to choose, of course, to our friendships with AIs over our friendships with um, people because, of course, they don't demand anything of us. They don't demand that we're nice to them or kind to them. They don't ask for reciprocity. Um, and um, so my fear is that, you know, that we don't want to be in a situation where we choose our AI over our human friends. We'd lose too much as a society. <laughs> so, you know, so when I was reading your book and I was thinking about this, um, because there's this kind of eternal question of trying to understand the present in light of where we are relative to the past and also understand w- uh, how have human needs and expectations shifted perhaps. So you know, I think of the, the the rancher in Patagonia or the, the settler in 1880s and the American frontier or the, you know, the, the, the British contingent who plops down in Nigeria in, uh, in 1910. Um, wasn't I mean? It seems to me that a lot of the human condition has been alone, right? Sometimes physically detached, even from a community and a tribe and a and a clan. Um, and so I wonder whether you know is is the loneliness of today the loss of that belonging in a community? Is it? Are we are we romanticizing that? Is it um, an expectation of connection? that's augmented by the awareness of what is possible, even though what is possible is not always prevalent. What are your thoughts about that? Mm, Great question. So uh, the way I define loneliness is it is partly that feeling of craving connection um, with friends or with family, um, craving intimacy um, and feeling that you're not, that you don't have it, but it's also 
a state of feeling disconnected in a more existential sense, a state of being disconnected, feeling disconnected, not only from your friends and family, but also from your fellow citizens, from your employer, from your government, um, a state of feeling invisible, not only amongst those closest to you, but also um, vis-a-vis these bigger uh, institutions that surround you. And, um, and so, you know, of course, you know, I'm not the first person to think of loneliness in this broader sense, whether we're talking about Marx's alienation or we're talking about um, Durkheim's anime. Um, clearly, there have been states of feeling lonely that we've seen in the past as well. But what I argue is that a whole um, host of drivers have come together over the past few decades that have accelerated and exacerbated um, loneliness and, and, and brought more people into that state of loneliness than have been in the, than have been in the past. Um, structural drivers, um, political, economic and technological, for sure, but also changes in the way we live our lives because um, you know, we do less with other people than in the past. We're less likely to be members of trade unions. We're less likely to be to go to church. We're less likely to be members of a parent-teachers association. So it's partly to do with the choices we've made. It's partly to do with um, the outcomes um, we're on the receiving end of. Um, it's partly to do with technology for sure. But it's um, and it's also to do with what we might think of as a neoliberal mindset, a um, mindset which you know has really ever since the 80s become increasingly individualistic, um, a mindset which has valorized qualities like competitiveness at the expense of qualities like caring for each other and compassion, so that we've really come to recast ourselves over the past few decades as consumers rather than citizens, as hustlers rather than helpers, as takers rather than givers. And that sort of mindset, that me first mindset, inevitably was going to beget a lonelier world. So um, so echoes of the past, for sure, but kind of ramped up for a whole host of reasons. And then the pandemic, of course, just massively accelerating how lonely people feel. I like that hustlers rather than helpers. It's a nice uh, pithy alliterative comment that I'm sure I will steal and uh, and not attribute to you and then bask in the glow of people's genial enjoyment of that phrase. Um, so there's a some of your work echoes a little bit what uh, Angus Deaton and Anne Close wrote about in in their deaths of despair which i know you 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 know pretty well and for those who don't it was a it was mostly looking at an american context although they, i think they've extended their data set since then about you know what happens in communities where there's high unemployment and particularly men can't find jobs and a changing economy and that there's a you know above above x death rate from opioids and alcoholism and, and other sort of premature death uh, qualities because people just feel they were without purpose, and and you write about that as well in the book about you know loneliness kills right. Um, 
one of the pushbacks in pandemic land, and I know you're in London now, and uh, you know people will watch this when things are hopefully a bit less constricted. But one of the critiques, or at least the the Soto Voce critiques of some of the lockdowns in the West, was that by augmenting that disconnection uh, and and that fissuring, you, you may be saving a considerable amount of COVID lives. But then the question is, you know, what are the longer term effects? And those longer term effects won't actually show up in a like a parallel time data column. Like if there's 10 years of deaths of despair based on the dislocations of lockdowns, we'll, we'll never quite know it. Right. And I wonder what you think about that and kind of in light of what you've what you've written and how, how one measures these trade offs. Right. Because in some sense, the past year has been a government mandated loneliness in order to save lives. Um, in the immediate term, but like, what's the long-term challenge? So, you know, what we know for sure is that loneliness does have a significant health impact and an impact on our mental health for sure. And with loneliness linked to increased rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide. And, and we are seeing this play out, um, with the most recent data on mental health, you know, in country after country over the past few um, weeks, even showing a marked increase in mental um, health problems, you know, not only to do, of course, with the increased isolation and just the general stress of living through a global pandemic. It's pretty stressful, but 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 the loneliness clearly playing a part in it. And in fact, researchers who looked at um, mental health outcomes after the um, initial Chinese SARS um, pandemic and compared people who had been quarantined in that period to people who hadn't showed a real significant increase in mental health problems and PTSD, um, et cetera, even years down the line from the group who had been quarantined. So you know, there clearly is a, um, there is something real um, that should be considered, and also a physical, um, a physical um, health consequence of loneliness. We know that even relatively short periods of loneliness, even periods of loneliness of under two years, can have a really marked impact on life expectancy. So these are real. I don't believe on balance um, that provides, though, the case against that that kind of validates the case against lockdown um because of the acute nature of what we've been facing but i do think what it does mean is that governments should be putting way more money into mental health services etc right now and moving beyond than they have so far um during this pandemic so i think it's it's not Either or, it's about it's about recognizing the toll that this is taking, um, and doing something about it, and committing the funds to doing something about it. And we have not seen that um, in most places. We have seen some additional commitments in um, Norway, in um, the Netherlands, uh, and in the United Kingdom. I, I don't know the situation in the United States. I haven't read of any. I mean, with these two massive bills, one at the end of December and 
the one in February, February, March of about $3 trillion. There's a lot of money for sort of healthcare in general, some of that going into addiction and mental health, how it will be distributed and how effectively and what that will actually mean, of course, remains, remains yes. to be seen. And, and in Europe, we've seen kind of allocations specifically mental health around loneliness, right. the loneliness um, kind of of the, um, of the past year. So, um, so yes, I think um, so. I, I I think despite the fact that clearly, you know, wearing masks, not being able to socialize with people, um, etc., is making people more lonely. On balance, it's a price worth paying as long as um, monies are put into to address the um, downside, which is real. So. You know, here's this another one of these huge, somewhat unanswerable, somewhat eye of the beholder questions, right? And that's the role of technology in all this. You know, you focus on technology, you focus on the political frameworks as both uh, accelerants, fuel, aggravants to these conditions of alienation, loneliness, atomization. Um, And I wonder, you know, to what degree the, the kind of the the two-edged sword or the, the the yin and the yang of technology as it's evidenced during the pandemic has been uh, one of the only offsets to isolation and atomization during the pandemic has been technology, right? It's been this. It's been this ability to at least find some way to connect, discuss, um, which is somewhat the opposite of what most of the, the, the tenor of the, the effects of technology, the black mirror thesis mm-hmm. of technology before March of 2020, has some of this shifted your view or did you always feel that these were essentially neutral tools that could be used to unite or divide, to connect or separate? Um, I think it depends to some degree on the particular media we're talking about. So, um, you know, for example, Zoom, which I I did look at at video before the pandemic and, you know, whilst I acknowledged even before, um, as I was researching and writing the book, that it was a better form of communication in many ways than text or um, messaging, because the more stripped back a form of communication, it, the less empathetic it turns out we feel. It still is nowhere near as good as being in person. And, you know, I'm sure that all of us feel that by now, a year into this, we're grateful that we've had ways to connect for sure, but we're missing being in a room with people, it is a different quality of connection for sure. I mean, different in in, in a neurological sense as well. Um, our brains actually synchronize um, when we're in a room with people, which is part of the reason we can feel empathetic. And it's actually very hard to get that synchronicity on a Zoom call because of the latency, the time lag, um, the fact that you're not, you can't really look in people's eyes, so our brains don't respond in exactly the same way. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. 
My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. There's been this whole uh, set of more anecdotal, but pretty prevalent of people trying to date during the pandemic and getting to know each other, what they think is very well over Zoom. You know, you're talking, you're interacting, maybe you're, you know, really interacting um, and then meet each other. And suddenly it doesn't work, right? Even though the the verosimilitude or the, the simulacrum of all this is, of course it works, right? I know you, I'm seeing Narina, I see your bookshelf, I see what you look like, I hear your voice. You would think that the next step of that, where you simply translate that into a, a three-dimensional would be a seamless transition. And it's fascinating, kind of a la what you just said, that there's so much that goes on yes. that we take in that is at a, at a kind of subliminal or, or pseudo-conscious level um, that we forget, basically, when we're doing this. Like, you know, I kind of know you, we're, we're kind of having a conversation, but maybe not quite the way we think. Yeah, because you can't see how my legs are crossed. You can't, you're not getting all those body language cues as well. You're not getting my scent, you know, all these subliminal kind of cues. Absolutely. So um, when it came to social media, I was really agnostic when it when I began my research. I, I didn't know if net it was going to be a positive or a negative when it came to loneliness specifically. Uh, but as I dug into the literature and as I interviewed more um lots of teenagers specifically on this subject time and time again from the interviews it came out how excluded and isolated and lonely the social media was making them feel um you know peter a 14 year old boy telling me about what it felt like when he'd post on instagram and then be waiting 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 for somebody to like his posts and then they didn't feel so invisible and feel so worthless or Claudia telling me when she um her friends had told her that they weren't going out after homecoming that she was in her room and she saw that they were going out they were out without her and she felt so excluded that she hid in her room for a week um of course you know kids were excluded in the past um but I think the difference is that in the past Firstly, the exclusion wasn't then broadcast. The shame wasn't you know, made so public. And also the adult in the kid's life would normally, an adult in the kid's life would normally intervene, see, or be, or try and intervene. So a teacher would see a kid not being asked to sit with others and would you know, make sure that, that they weren't sitting alone. Or a parent would see a kid not being invited to something. And nowadays, a lot of this exclusion is actually happening on their phones. And so... The adult in their life isn't even aware of it. But also the level of abuse that um, young people are receiving on the receiving end when it comes to social media is of a scale that I had not appreciated until I began my research. 60%, 64% of UK college students have 
um, experienced abuse on Facebook, one in three 18 to 24-year-old um, British women have experienced abuse on Facebook. And of course, if you're being bullied, abused, etc., the world is going to feel more lonely. And then, then there's just the more kind of prosaic fact that you scroll on your social, when you scroll on your social media feeds, I mean, it's easy to think that everyone's more popular than you that everyone has more friends than you, that everyone has more likes, that everyone has more retweets, and to feel in a relative sense, and that speaks to a question you asked earlier, you know, is this a perception thing? You know, in part, this sense of a kind of a relative sense of, well, I'm less popular, I have less friends than others. And, and then, of course, social media, you know, being actively designed, as we now know, to be so addictive that it, actually keeps us away from, um, distracted from our in-person relationships. And I, mean, I don't know about you, but I've been guilty of it, sitting on the sofa next to my husband, scrolling on my phone, and you know, he'll say something and I might not even hear him because I'm so absorbed. Um, so, And we know from research that even a smartphone, they did an experiment where they put, put smartphones on tables between couples. And even when the smartphone was turned off, which was fascinating, and even when neither was touching it, the couple felt less connected to each other and less empathetic. Right, because they were sitting there wondering what they were missing on their smartphone while they're trying to interface with each other. I mean, I do wonder whether or not, again, some of this is the kind of the radical transparency or information transparency that these things provide, because you know, even being able to say what you just said, right, X number of people on Facebook report abuse or X number of people on social media report bullying, mm. we wouldn't have been able to say the same things about the 1950s because there would have been no real way to collect data about how many kids were feeling bullied or how many girls were feeling, you know, harassed. Um, and 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 then the visual part of it, right, we're hyper aware because we can see it or we can hear it or, or we can read the text. There's this real question certainly in the United States these in, in the past few years, whether there has been any actual increase in, in police violence and abuse, or whether the fact that so much of it is now captured by body cams and cameras makes mm-hmm. us highly attuned to what used to be prevalent, but invisible, right? And that's an interesting, interesting as a well, kind of a pallid yeah. word. I think, you know, in social sciences, I think this is often a kind of challenge in actually um, kind of digging into the um, data and and establishing um, whether whether there are causal kind of links or whether this is a reporting, you know, this is to do with different reporting, et cetera. But I think a couple of landmark studies in recent years um, help really make clear that social media is making people lonelier. Um, The first was this very big study done at Stanford University in 2019, real gold standard of a study, um, 1,500 in a control group. They were told to use Facebook as usual, 1,500 told to stop using Facebook for two months. And the researchers kind of tracked both groups. And what they found was very unambiguous. The group that stopped using Facebook spent significantly more time doing things in person with friends and family. So it wasn't that they just went and did things on other websites. They did much more in person and they felt significantly happier 
and significantly less lonely. So that was an example where people actually changed their behavior. And that study has now been replicated on different, with researchers using different platforms and, you know, with consistent results where people are finding that actually stopping using these platforms is making people feel less lonely. So I think that kind of, you know, when I came across that body of literature, um, this more recent one, I felt, you know. I feel like we should stop recording now. <laughs> you know, like that's somehow we're, you know, we're kind of complicit in in something inadvertently. Um, because as as we wrap up, I'm curious because you you do have a series of, of of prescriptions, right? You don't your tenor is not all is lost, you know, no. oh well. Um, and I think you more than some feel there is a a much more active role for government to kind of constructively shift gears, move the needle. One in terms of how politicians talk about. Um, their community, you know, as opposed to just their own personal electoral and or political fortunes, right? I mean, you have a lot of stuff about uh, the, the kind of the me, me, me factor of a lot of particularly movements to the right, um, although it's just as true, I think, in on, on the left in terms of, you know, pay attention to me and my needs. Um, it's, a, it's a ubiquitous collective issue. It's not just the West, you know, same issues, same issues that can take place even in more collective societies, uh, East Asia. So this is a kind of a human dilemma right now. But so tell us a little about like what the more constructive path forward is, because I think sure. more than many, you have a really strong belief in, you know, technology is not destiny and the world as it is, is, is not the world as it necessarily should or will be. For sure. And my book is full of ideas of what can be done, what governments can do, what businesses can do, and what we as individuals can do. I mean, governments, just to speak to a a couple of things, um, one thing that is clear and is clearly part of the problem is that really ever since the 2000, and even before, but accelerating after the 2008 financial crisis, we've seen a steady defunding of what we might think of as an infrastructure community public libraries, public parks, youth clubs, daycare centres, elderly daycare centres, physical spaces where people can be together and come together. And that needs to be reversed as a matter of urgency. In the United States, um, public libraries saw a decrease in federal funding of 40% since 2008. So we need these physical spaces where people can be together. So that's kind of one pretty easy fix. I like um, that phrase, infrastructure of community is a really nice articulation of it. Thank you. Um, I think another thing government can do and really needed now is um, think about how it can best support our local main streets, um, you know, our local cafes, our local stores, our local studios. They're all on their knees um, thanks to this past year. and. And yet these are brick and mortar spaces that, again, play a really important role in nurturing and anchoring our communities. And whether that is around um, um, particular tax status, um, I I talk about in my book, a kind of new tax status, pro-community businesses, which should get favourable tax statuses, whether it's... um, 
mirroring initiatives like we've seen elsewhere in the world. In Belgium, for example, they have what's called an empty shop tax to disincentivize landlords from keeping shops empty for protracted periods, um, waiting out for higher rents. Um, so you know, they have a kind of rising tax the longer they do so. So there's a whole host of whether it's kind of um, particularly favorable, um, leveling the playing field, of course, with e-commerce um, e-tailers, um, a whole host of measures governments can look at at local levels, um, so perhaps at federal levels around reinvigorating our main streets, I think is really important, crucial as well. And um, you know, much more governments can do, but but also um, there is a role for the market here as well. This isn't all about the state um, by any means. It, there are things it needs to do, but it isn't all about the state. Um, you know, I do think there's an opportunity here for innovation and for entrepreneurship um, when it comes to designing and delivering products that can alleviate loneliness and at best deliver community. There's a lovely example in South Korea um, of these daytime discos for elderly people where thousands of elderly people dance by day in these daytime discos. And it's a commercial initiative, but the prices get very low. Entry costs are low because they're operating at scale. They're able to do so, um, providing a brilliant service for people and, um, and also a business opportunity. And of course, we saw before the pandemic a real rise in appetite um, for these shared collective experiences, whether it was a rise in people attending music festivals or going to escape rooms or um, you know, coming to crafting together. And of course, during the pandemic, much of this has shifted online. But I believe that post, as soon as people feel safe again, we are going to see a huge um, pent-up demand for these physical um, in-person shared experiences, which provides a business opportunity. And of course, there's a technological opportunity as well. Um, you know, whilst I've, I've kind of said, you know, I am I worry about the societal ramifications, I can also see um, that there is a role and will be a role for social robots, for example, um, helping with elderly care. Um, there was an Israeli startup which makes a robot LEQ and ship thousands of them to elderly retirees in, retirees in Florida during the pandemic. And the testimonies were very moving with people saying, you know, I would have felt so lonely had I not had my LEQ with them. So I think there's a role for technology there. But of course, there's also a role for us. It's also to do with the choices we make about how we lead our lives. It's partly about recognizing that there are trade-offs sometimes that we will need to make between um, convenience and community, between even at times freedom and fraternity, if we want to feel more connected to each other. Um, but also things that we can do in a tangible way. You know, we can try and put our phones down more, although recognizing how addictive they are, which is why I do think there's a role for government there, for sure regulating social media companies more but we can try I try and put my phone in a basket in the evening so that it's not actually in arm's reach because when it's in arm's reach my arm goes there um we can consciously nurture our own neighborhoods more especially now you know consciously 
support our local bookshops, our local cafes, our local stores, um, because you know those micro exchanges we have in those shops make a thirty second chat with the barista, the hello, how are you at our grocery store. Those are moments that make us feel much more connected to each other, and we need them. And also, I think. Right now, given how lonely people are feeling in the United States, around 50% of people are currently saying that they feel lonely. Think about whether there's anyone in your own network who might be feeling lonely. And if there is, reach out to them. Even just send them a text saying, thinking of you when they spring to mind, or if you can, meet up with them in a socially distanced way or pick up the phone because just showing someone that you're thinking about them, that you see them, that they're in your mind, can make a huge difference to how they feel. Amen to that. Um, Anyway, it's a great book, uh, but of course you are more than the sum of your recent book. So, you you know, there's, there's good work to come and good work before. So, you know, you are a thinker, a doer worth following and listening to. And it's been great listening to you and talking with you for a half an hour in, in pandemic land. Hopefully the lonely century, which I know you believe is is descriptive uh, and not prescriptive and that uh, it, it, it will not be a book that you would need to uh, write a second edition of in 10 years, but that's definitely an aspiration that I know that you are totally dedicated to making sure is true and that the, fu- that the future is not a... Uh, a sorry replication of, of the past or at least of the recent past. So thank you for your work. Thanks for joining the Progress Network. Keep going. I'm sure we'll continue to have these conversations. At least I hope we continue to have these conversations. And uh, it's been great today. Thank you. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Varvalukas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ambro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>